Welcome everyone to the Precision Health Pod, where we talk to the people building and experiencing the future of health. Today, we want to welcome Melanie Strong, founding partner at Next Ventures, a venture capital firm she founded with Lance Armstrong that focuses on the next generation of sports, health, and wellness brands. Welcome, Melanie. Hi, Rachel. Thank you for having me. Yes, we're excited to uh, chat today. So to get started, can you share a little bit more about you and how you got to where you are today? Sure. I have a very, very untraditional uh, path to VC, um, which I used to think was a huge disadvantage. And now I'm learning three plus years into Next Ventures that I think founders kind of resonate with the fact that we have different backgrounds. I actually started my career as a first grade teacher in Philly, um, which isn't a part of my story I used to talk about. um, But I actually think it's formed a lot of the the person that I am and the leader that I am today. Uh, It was still the hardest job I've ever had. Uh, I actually went back to school, got a master's in print journalism, and then started a pretty long career at Nike, kind of working my way up. I was a digital producer, just entry level, trying to figure out the corporate world, and uh, ended up working my way up to running big businesses like Nike Women, Nike Skateboarding, super fun, worked on soccer, football for all of the Southern Hemisphere. And during that whole journey, sports was a really big part of my life and story, Uh, I played uh, various sports growing up, but ran cross country sort of as my primary endeavor. And I think the other factor of my personal life that has really informed the kind of investor I am today, my little sister has cerebral palsy. Uh, I'm her legal guardian. Um, And that has been, I think, a really important part of how I look at the world and look at access. Um, So I love to tell my sister's story in terms of the frame of reference for how I think about all the ways we can encourage people to live healthier lives. Definitely. So it sounds like health and wellness has been part of your personal and professional life for a long time. Is it still kind of on the running side? Is that still something you're doing on a day-to-day basis? Absolutely. Yeah. I run occasionally. Uh, I fell in love with biking years ago, first road cycling and then mountain biking. And when we moved to Oregon in 2002, sort of fell in love with the trail system here and the community here. Um, And so being in nature has really been an important part of my life, especially the last 20 years, because I was traveling so much and I was in meetings and in offices so much. I really needed that experience of reconnecting with, with nature. And so it's been quite grounding for me. And so seven years ago, actually, we started a mountain bike tour guiding business out here. My husband runs it. Super fun. Uh, We live in Hood River, Oregon now, which is about an hour east of the city of Portland. That's great. Kind of tying in, adding a, adding the hobby to an extra business um, in in addition to every, everything else that you're doing. Um, So you mentioned, of course, that you spent a lot of time at Nike. I think it's like 18, 20 years that you were there. What made you make the jump between that and founding a venture fund? Yeah, it's a great question. I was sort of embarrassed about my lack of knowledge and experience and participation in the whole early stage part of the business ecosystem, right? I jumped from basically nonprofit, right? First grade teaching, journalism to a very large publicly traded company and spent so many years heads down, just sort of trying to survive and thrive in the corporate environment that by the time I was in a position to start doing angel investing, I really had no idea how to do that well. You know, I was 
pretty senior at that point at Nike. That was probably 2016. And, and a lot of my peers weren't talking about deals the way our male peers were. And that perplexed me. And we live in this great city where there are a lot of people who grew up in the sports and fitness and health ecosystem who are building. And we weren't as Nike executives really participating in that at all. And so I made my first angel investment intentionally because I wanted to learn from her what her experience was like building in the sports and fitness space uh, as an Asian female. And I wanted to get a sense of how I could do more to participate in that ecosystem. I didn't know that was going to lead to starting Next Ventures, honestly. Um, but I had started to join boards of some companies, including a VC-founded company in Oakland called Visco. And I had the opportunity to sit um, with really smart people in this space, like James Joaquin from Obvious Ventures and Ryan Sweeney from Excel, Glenn Capital. And I'll be honest, I'd never heard of any of those people uh, <laughs> back when I joined that board. But now I look back and I think how lucky I was to sit with people who are in many cases are still my mentors today and who gave me the courage to look at this as a like an appropriate next chapter for someone like me because I didn't go to any of the big schools and I don't have a typical investment banking experience. And they reminded me that that's actually a strength and that I could bring everything I did learn in my career and be really valuable as a fund manager. Definitely. And what made you go from angel to starting a fund versus joining another fund versus kind of being a bigger angel and continuing uh, your career at Nike? Yeah, I knew I'd probably spent too long at Nike, right? So like that was its own decision. Like I yeah. needed to do something else and learn something different and get uncomfortable again. I think if I was going to take the risk to leave a job that I worked so hard to create for myself, I wanted to take the big risk, which would not in my mind have been joining another firm. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to fundraise. I wanted to have the experience of building something from scratch of figuring out how to onboard talent um, and, and how to construct something legally that makes sense, you know, how to do the work around minimal viable fund size, which isn't something I really feel like I would have learned if I joined a bigger firm. So I think I just wanted the, to go all the way in learning as much as I could. And I think that's really been valuable. Um, I would have been lost in a big ecosystem of a bigger firm. But with, you know, the four of us now at Next Ventures, I feel like we've seen all the ins and outs. We're about to raise our second fund. And, you know, I feel like that's really, um, it's just been a really exciting journey to kind of go all the way in uh, learning and making all the mistakes. And I think that that founders really resonate with that too, as a result. Yeah. I mean, that's a story that you hear from founders all the time. And and one of the biggest pieces of advice is like, you don't know until you do it and you're not going to learn it until you do it. So that makes sense in terms of jumping in and, and really taking taking that leap. So as you think about, um, you guys have fund one, you're raising fund two. What is your approach at Next Ventures? How are you approaching this market differently than other funds? Yeah, I think you know, we live in between the sort of traditional DTC space that you see certainly a lot of firms focused on within health and wellness and deep health tech. I think because we have such a consumer orientation, the way we like to think about our thesis is through the lens of whole person health. So we want to look across our portfolio of now 18 companies and feel like we have leaders, founders representing each of the facets of what it takes to be a completely healthy person. <laughs> and that could be 
kind of upstream, like an aura ring, which was one of our earliest, our earliest investment actually, um, who certainly like sort of made um, a name for themselves around proactive ownership of your health data as part of your journey as a healthy consumer. And then we've invested in more downstream companies with deeper clinical outcomes, um, including uh, Trial Library, which is a uh, clinical platform. So I think we want to know that we have hopefully surrounded a consumer with all of the best in every aspect of how she might be thinking about her health journey, her family's health journey. We have a long way to go. There are tons of gaps there. And that's exciting for us as we think about the future of Next Ventures, where we can continue to invest in food, GI, um, the intersection of climate change and healthcare. I think there are a lot of spaces yet to be discovered if whole person health is our angle. And when you talk about those opportunities, what are some examples of specific trends that you're really interested in or that you guys are going to be diving into as you look into fun too? I think we want to find places where what it means to be a healthy consumer intersects with some aspect of our lives that is ready for change, you know, so insurance, financial products, um, parts of our everyday lives where health and wellness may play a role, but there isn't necessarily an incentive based Mm -hmm. into prioritizing health and wellness as that part of your life. We've looked at lots of really cool credit cards um, and other financial products that incentivize healthy, active lifestyles. Um, I think that that's a really interesting space. We've also spent um, some time thinking about like climate change and what those big macro issues are going to mean for us as a society, if we're going to have to think differently about being active um, when our air quality might be reduced and we have other kind of high cold, like low temperature variations to consider. Like I, I think the reality is it's going to be on us and, and on founders to think about how to enable you know, healthy and outdoor and active lifestyles in the future. Yeah, definitely. And there's, of course, you're kind of looking at this intersection. It's a lot of consumer. It's a lot of kind of next gen of what health looks like. But then as we think about the overall healthcare, health and wellness discussion, obviously traditional health, whether that's payers, providers, plays plays a role in that. How do you envision the combination going forward over the next three to five years? Like where does consumer health meet traditional health and how does that kind of push everyone's health uh, forward? Yeah. I don't know if you buy this stat, but what we keep hearing from people who are researching consumer behavior is that a large majority of young consumers are opting out of their traditional employee provided healthcare plans, either because it's not covering the services they really want and need or because they feel like there's a better alternative through a la carte um, choices. I think that's really interesting. Um, You know, as a Gen Xer, (laughs) just the fact that I had health insurance was super exciting. And honestly, there wasn't the choice of not accepting my great Nike insurance. But um, I think, you know, I've had the the journey of uh, traumatic brain injury. It's one of the ways I got connected to you and your team earlier this year. And my own experience with a really good healthcare system, so to speak, 
here in Oregon um, and all the barriers around being able to really feel like I was getting a good continuum of care through my experience has definitely changed my view of the limitations of the traditional system. So I think there are going to be more, there's going to be more choice. I think there's going to be more hybrid healthcare solutions. I do think that there's still going to be a need for in-person connections with your healthcare team, but I think that that can be supplemented by digital um, and telehealth options. And then I, I think that the ability to integrate your data through the consumer-oriented products, whether it's an Apple Watch or an Aura Ring, and compare that to your medical data through an integrated database would be pretty spectacular. You know, I was screen grabbing my Aura data for my doctor when I was recovering from my brain injury because it was like the only thing I had to measure my progress when my sleep started stabilizing. But I look forward to the day when, with my permission, I can give her that access and she can see things that I might not be able to see um, because she's more oriented around the ways in which my data are telling a story that I don't understand because I don't have a medical degree. So I'm looking forward to that with giving consumers more choice, more control, more transparency, um, and the safety and the privacy that must then come with Mm -hmm. that new way of integrating your health data. Yeah, definitely. No, I I agree with all of that. And and haven't seen that stat that you mentioned where people are choosing not to go through the employer-sponsored health plans, but I I can see that happening and I can see the why behind it. I mean, we now have access, as you mentioned, to more consumer health data than ever before. People are asking more questions. They're more invested in their own health because they can see the data. And so having that combination of, yes, you're going to have some traditional providers those providers probably aren't going to cover all the conditions. So TBIs is, is an example. Um, I have someone in my family that's experienced that as well. And it's traditional medical care doesn't really fit TBIs because they're so unique often and there's not as much research around it. And there's other conditions like that as well that this new wave of consumer interest in data can start to address as well. So it's the, the future, I think, is bright <laughs> as long as we can can kind of continue down the down the path that we're we're going on. Um and obviously you're you're in the space every day. You're you're looking at all these different companies. Is there anything personally that you love to use and is really a non-negotiable for your health stack on a day-to-day? Mm-hmm. You know, sleep continues to be the one thing I obsess and I have a whole protocol around that now, especially coming out of my accident and my brain injury that actually starts in the morning. So one of the first things that I do is go and try to get sunshine, which in Oregon can be a bit of a challenge, but today it's gorgeous. I went out and made sure I got like 15, 20 minutes of direct sunlight exposure. And that has um, really helped me just level set my circadian rhythm One of the um, companies that we work with called Momentus partners with Dr. Andrew Huberman from Stanford. And he's done a lot of really interesting research around the importance of having sunlight exposure within the first hour or two of waking up. So not a device per se, but a behavior that like I didn't expect to have as meaningful like impact on me throughout the day as it does. Um, I'm a big fan of nutrition, uh, obviously, so are you. (laughs) as a way to um, 
both supplement what I may or may not be getting from Whole Foods, but also just sort of personally address some of the things that um, are part of my life as a woman, a perimenopausal woman, um, a woman who has, you know, methylation defect, like so many of us do. I have one as well. You do? Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's not something I knew anything about until, I don't know, five or six years ago. And so understanding what sort of supplements I need to take to make sure that my body is then processing um, energy appropriately because of that very common methylation uh, gene. And um, so I do at some point every morning take supplements um, just based on where I feel I am in my week and my month and my life, uh, whether I'm preparing for travel. Um, This may be a little, I don't know, niche and specific, But one of the practices that I was introduced to because of my brain injury that I've really stuck with is um, cryotherapy. So even in Hood River, which is, you know, a very small eight to 10,000 person town, we have a place here called Cell Region where I can get hyperbaric oxygen therapy, which has been proven to be really helpful Mm -hmm. for brain injury recovery. But um, they also have a really cool cryo tank and sauna. And that has despite my having tons of anxiety about it, because I hate being cold. (laughs) That has actually been a really interesting way for me to um, like regulate my metabolism, have clarity of thought in mind. There's a breathwork practice associated with, with it that I can use throughout the day, even when I'm not getting ready to go into 33 degree water. And so the breath work stays with me. Um, And then the other devices, you know, I, We've tried continuous glucose monitors. I actually mm-hmm. have one downstairs that I'm looking forward to trying. I think that those have a role to play, especially if you're not clear how different foods impact your blood sugar. I, but I can't see myself walking around with a micro needle in my body every day. But I do think it has its place, just like a lot of other really great wearables. Um, my view on on wearables is they have a moment in time for every consumer and it may not be every day. It may be when you're preparing for an event or you have a health goal you're working towards, or if you're just dealing with something, some sort of immune thing um, that requires you to just get a better handle on how the variables we do get to control in our lives impact our health. And so like I see wearables really as an ebb and flow in a consumer's Mm -hmm. life, largely based on health goals, lifestyle changes, health changes that they may or may not have been able to predict. Um, And then at times those devices don't need to be present and we can listen to our bodies. I think that's also really important. That's so interesting. You hear, I mean, most people, a lot of people in the space will say, all right, I'm doing this wearable or I have this tool every single day. Um, But that's an experience that I've experienced the same thing. Like I've gone through cycles of wearing certain wearables. I go on and off on CGMs. I don't need it every day, but it is a good check-in to kind of understand what's going on. Um, But I do think that makes sense kind of going forward. And as you think about the wearable space or kind of the digital biomarker space in general, is there any kind of upcoming new devices, new tools that you're tracking or that you're really excited about to kind of help usher in this new kind of health goal or the ebb and flow, as you mentioned with consumers? Yeah. Yeah. I think one of our missions is to look for companies that are reducing friction, mm-hmm. reducing barriers, so creating access. So it has to be easy. I think that's one of the things I love about the Aura Ring is it just feels really easy to use it when you want to use it. 
Um, but you can also pause or just use it at night to measure sleep. Like it's just there when you need it. I think that that's really an important element of why we build the things we build um, is that there's ease of use and it can be incorporated into your daily life. Um, I'm intrigued again. I think I have this climate thing on my mind right now. Um, I do think that being able to wear something that allows us to understand air quality, sun exposure, um, I don't know, better read our environment Mm -hmm. so that we can make better choices when we are outdoors and active. Um, we've looked at a couple skin-based sensors uh, we haven't made an investment there because the technology isn't quite there yet, but I think it's interesting. Um, you know, I think that again, we're going to need to have more information about our environment. So we understand the risks associated with choosing to, you know, run inside versus outside. So back to that idea of these big macro spaces intersecting around health and wellness I think that that's something that we're really excited to continue to watch. I love the food space. Um, You know, I think there's going to be more opportunities to think about the ways in which the plant-based protein choice that many people are making can also intersect with uh, regenerative farming, which can intersect with, again, like reduction of climate impact, environmental impact. Like, I just think that we're, sitting at this really unique place where we're going to be able to um, take advantage of, for better, for worse, some of the themes and trends that are happening societally and just help people make better choices. So I'm all in for any piece of hardware, (laughs) any (laughs) app, although I'm not convinced the world needs one more app, but I (laughs) am all for any technology that just makes it easier for people to make better and more informed choices based on science. <laughs> I think that is the sweet spot. And I know that's where routine sits, which I think is fantastic that you've built something that is really at the center of all of those truths about how we serve consumers and let them use their own information to make the best choices they can make. Exactly. Science matters, data matters, outcomes matter. And that's that's one of the things that we believe in a lot, but also as just part of this ecosystem, I'm excited about seeing going forward. Um, I did want to circle back on the cryotherapy. This is something I'm really interested in. So I haven't started, I haven't tried it yet because I too am, I hate the cold and I'm terrified <laughs> of having to get in. I I, I think as an, as an athlete in high school, I, I would did some ice baths occasionally and just have this like terror. How did you go from, all right, yes, this is a trend. Yes, it seems like people are benefiting from it. I'm going to get over my fear of it. I'm just going to try it. How did that journey go for you? Mm. You know, I would, so the clinic where I was getting my hyperbaric treatments after my crash uh, required me to walk past the cryo area. (laughs) And I would see people emerging from that room feeling like transformed. You know, you could just tell that people were having these transformational moments almost as much emotionally and psychologically as physically coming out of a 30 minute session of going back and forth between hot and cold. And so I think that that was one 
reason why I felt like I was seeing all these people who look like us, right? They're not just the biohacker. I'm I'm not a fan of that concept because I think it conjures up a very specific type of person that I don't relate to. (laughs) But I do think that the methods and technologies and innovations that may be built first for biohackers can, you know, help all of us. And so it really like opened my eyes to seeing all the different types of people who are already getting such a big benefit from cryo. A lot of older people in our community here who are using cryotherapy just as a means to feel more connected to their bodies. You know, I, the doctor who runs his clinic here was telling me about these very spiritual, like very personal moments that people were having, knowing that they could push themselves to sitting in that tub for seven to 10 minutes. And that that acknowledgement of what your body and thus your mind can endure because of how strong we are. Like, I think there was just like some really compelling psychological component to that, that I wanted to test for myself. And if I could only do it for a minute, so be it. But he really helped work me up to being able to stay in the cryo tank for, I think my longest now has been like eight or nine minutes. Um, it, it took a while. And then he does Wim Hof breathing. If you're okay. familiar with Wim's mm-hmm. approach um, before you get in the tub and that really does make a difference. So, you know, I'll sit there and we'll do like 30 quick Wim Hof breaths. And it just, I know there's science behind it, but I'm not knowledgeable enough to articulate what it is, but it just really helps you have the courage to get into the tub. And for that first, like 30 to 60 seconds to be a lot less painful. Very, very interesting. So you started slow, you have some methodologies and then have built up to the, to the nine, eight, nine minutes, which is very impressive. Um, (laughs) Still something I, I need to look into, but yeah, for any listeners that are kind of thinking about cryo, um, that's a really good, good way to approach it. And I also love what you said about the biohacker kind of aspect. So I refer to people, or at least our target that know our members are everyday high performers. So it's not just the biohackers of the world, but it's people like us that are looking to get an edge, whether it's at work, at home, as a parent or, um, on the field, if they're, if they're working out or they're competing in triathlons, there's this whole world of data and great technology that can be utilized by such a wide variety of people. It's great to see, start to see people that look different than the traditional biohacker starts to really take advantage of it and talk about it. Like you experiencing cryo, for instance, uh, versus just these very intense biohackers that not everyone <laughs> identifies with. Um, yeah. And then as you think about kind of going back to the, to the VC lens a little bit, as you think about the types of people and the founders that you're really excited about investing in that are really making changes in the spaces that you're excited about, what are you as an investor looking for um, for those people that are kind of building the next generation? Mm-hmm. This is where we've had, I think, our most important lessons um, as emerging fund managers. We found great ideas that have traction, that consumers are paying for and paying for again. Um, But if those technologies, companies, innovations are not being led by a person or team that is oriented around something bigger than an exit, when 
things go sideways as they have for every founder, and I'm sure including you in the last year or two, those founders don't necessarily have the mindset to continue to lead their companies and their teams through those difficult times. So I, you know, again, as an untraditional VC, and I still often feel like the VC community might see me as an outsider because I didn't grow up in it the way a lot of people did. The way we celebrate certain types of repeat founders is so puzzling to me because it is so clear that there's a strong drive to have an exit and obviously deliver great returns to their investors. That's why we're in this ecosystem as well. But I think that having sort of a mission orientation that may come from a personal story, that may come from a specific perhaps very deeply painful experience that someone has had in their own journey to being the best and healthiest person that they can be. I find those founders to be a lot more interesting. I think they make better leaders. Um, I think that they build better cultures for their teams when you're oriented around something that's like positively changing people's lives versus trying to rally a team around some sort of monetary outcome. I find that that's a very short term view of how to build a company. So I want to find the people who have had experiences and they've probably lived outside the very privileged ecosystem of founders that you and I both see and hear from every day, right? The ones who went to the right schools and maybe had access to a lot of capital right out of the gate. They're going to do just fine. <laughs> I'm sure, but I am more interested in finding founders who are building on the outside. And so they have a little more of an orientation around their why, like, why am I building this? And am I going to stick through the hard times to help this be successful? Because I believe in the mission. I think that that is something I'm pretty attuned to because I also feel like an outsider. <laughs> and so I usually can find that sense of a founder who has also had struggles and who hasn't had maybe some of the same advantages of people who have grown up in the Bay Area and, and again, gone to these schools with these strong alumni networks that are just there and ready to give you capital. Um, I'd rather find the founders who have had to work really hard. Those founders are often, by the way, not white men, um, and who then have had to um, really run their businesses thinking about um, all the ways in which they want to contribute something positively to the world versus are just being this big financial ego-driven outcome. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I will say from someone who has gone to some of those schools and <laughs> grown up in that that world, um, that still doesn't look uh, like a lot of those other founders. I'm not a white man, obviously. Um, it's still... Um, there's there's this drive that's kind of outside of that traditional um, approach that comes from being not exactly the that kind of carbon copy of of what might have come before. Um, even if you ha do have shared background, if you don't look like that person or you don't have those kind of exact same experiences, there's it's harder, which means that the people that are sticking through it have more ability to kind of work through the work through all of those challenges. Um, and as I've done a very small amount of angel investing, and that's something I look at as well as kind of what's the why, uh, especially in this space, there's so many people 
that are trying to build for exits. And then there's this other cohort of people that are building because they had these experiences and because they just understand it a little bit better, both from a personal and business standpoint, um, that mm-hmm. make better founders, better teams, better products. Uh, so really agree with you on that one. And then outside of kind of how you guys think about it at, at Next, is there any kind of podcast people, thought leaders? I know you mentioned Humorman, you mentioned um, Wim Hof, but is there anyone else or any other books, newsletters that you really love um, in this space? Mm-hmm. I, I love Stacey Sims and Louisa Nicola and some of the women who I think are leading voices in the space of high-performing people. Um, I love the Knowledge Project, Shane Parrish's podcast. I never expected to because it's sort of outside our human performance focus, but it, yet it's not. Um, his, I think his most recent podcast was just about like easy ways to attain happiness, um, which really resonated with me right now because I feel like the news cycle makes it so hard to feel like you can still experience joy and not feel terribly guilty about that. And so I've really enjoyed the knowledge project. Um, I love reading. I I almost exclusively read sci-fi and fantasy. <laughs> Much to the dismay of all of my friends who think I'm the biggest nerd. But I do think that having grown up in a family where we were all sort of sci-fi nerds, there there was sort of this um, moment when I was at Nike when I sort of realized that the way we thought about our innovation roadmap and sort of predicting the trends of the future was by bringing sci-fi authors in. They're futurists. They're often predicting the ways in which we're going to need to adapt as a species in order to thrive. And so I I love being able to balance my very practical day job with thinking about the future. Um, So anyone in that space who is sort of a big thinker, um, I really enjoy thinking and and listening and and reading about some of what they're working on. Um, Because I'm here in Oregon, I spend a little more time in the University of Oregon and OSU kind of ecosystem Um, And I do some lecturing here uh, with the University of Oregon's business school. And I love spending time with people who are on the front end of their careers. Um, So they may not be famous yet, but I believe that it's important, especially for someone at this chapter of my life and career to be contributing and also learning from people who are emerging into their next, making a choice between starting a company or joining a company or doing something entirely different that I didn't even know was possible when I was their age. And so I think that that's really important as well, spending time with the consumer, frankly, that many of our companies are building for. Mm -hmm. If I lose touch with what their needs are, that's where that stat came from around uh, young consumers opting out of traditional healthcare. I think where gender is going from a gender fluidity perspective, it's fascinating. A lot of builders of my generation would not have considered a time where gender was no longer binary. And how do you think about that and the way you onboard your customer and build your brand? Um, I think that that's really fascinating. So yeah, I love anyone talking about both the really big picture concepts but then bringing them back to really easy to understand tangible ways that I can change my habits to feel healthier and happier. 
Definitely. And what are some of the kind of the pieces of advice that you give those folks that are early in their career or maybe anyone in our audience that wants to get into to the health and human performance space, whether it's as an investor, as a builder, as a founder, or just go work for, for some of these great companies in the space? Yeah. Yeah. I'd be comfortable with the nonlinear path. I think it makes you more interesting. I think it exposes you to your weaknesses which is important uh, as a founder, as anyone in this space. I think understanding what you're great at and what you're really terrible at is, is just important in general. And you don't learn about the terrible part unless you make mistakes, unless you choose some jobs and some opportunities and some challenges and fail. Without that failure, you're sort of living in a safe space where I don't think you have the advantage of understanding your true potential. So I think that that is really important earlier on. Failure is harder when you get to my my age, right? I think it's still possible. I mean, we could have failed. And frankly, who knows? We're three plus years into Next Ventures. We're still proving that we deserve to be here, right? And that's very humbling. Um, we want to continue to work hard and have some great success stories and earn the trust and respect of great founders. And that doesn't happen in a year or two. It happens over a decade or more. And so that mindset is really humbling and a little scary. And so I would encourage people to make all the mistakes they can make and make them early if you can. Um, And then the thing we get to control in this life is ourselves. We get to really understand what we're great at and understand how to put ourselves in the place where we can do those great things and contribute in the most, I think, the largest way possible. And so I always encourage people to just try things um, and then be really comfortable acknowledging when it was the wrong choice (laughs) versus sticking to it too long. The trying is the easy part. The acknowledging when, when and why and kind of moving forward, taking the lessons is the harder part. But I think such good advice, honestly, for anyone at any age and in any career to kind of think about. Um, Well, thank you so much, Melanie, for joining us on the Precision Health Pod this is a great conversation. Just want to ask, how can our audience find more, find out more about you or Next Ventures? Mm-hmm. We are at nextventures.com. Um, I am on almost every social platform. I'm a terrible Twitterer, uh, but I am everywhere. Uh, yeah, and we have a Substack um, newsletter that we work really hard on. I would love people's feedback. Please subscribe, read a few articles, give us feedback on what you'd like to hear more or less about. Um, But I think that's probably the best way to get connected to us and our firm. And yeah, we'd love to hear from your community. Let us know what you're trying, what you love and hate about our space, um, just so we can hopefully find great companies that are solving some of those problems. Definitely. And we'll have to get a link to the to the Substack so we can make it easy for everyone to find it. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Madden and Mitchell Media. 